Conflict ends things. When it comes to conflict, it can either end relationships or it can end the shallowness of relationships. We spent the last three weeks and each week we've started off and we've asked the question, what do you do when what God says doesn't line up with who it is that he claims to be? We've talked a whole lot about what to do with that, but before we get there, I want to talk about what you have. When you get to a point where you have that, what God does doesn't line up with what he says that he is, what you have there is doubt. And doubt is nothing more than a conflict. Doubt is the mismatched socks of our expectations of God and the experiences that we actually have with them. And I say that it's a conflict because conflict ends things. You and I are scared of conflict. You and I know that conflict has been the end of certain relationships that we've had. Right? There's sometimes where we just fall out of touch with folks, but then there's sometimes the conflict has been so tough that we've said, I'm going to create distance from you because if I find myself close to you, I'm likely going to put hands on you, and then we'll fall out of touch. The truth is that while some relationships do end because of conflict, they don't have to. Conflict can end the shallowness in relationships, and here's what I mean by that. You don't have a deep relationship, or you won't have a deep relationship that is conflictless. Your best friends are people that you've gone through the worst times with. What conflict does is it starts to deepen things inside of us. So what we've talked about these past few weeks is that if doubt is a conflict, then doubt doesn't have to extinguish your faith. Doubt can actually be a tool to expand your faith. Doubt is not a disqualifier from relationship with God. Often doubt is the starting point that leads us to have a deeper, fuller, rich, and robust relationship with God, but it all comes down to what you do with doubt. If you let your doubt direct you, it's going to blow out your faith. But if you have faith enough to direct your doubt towards God, it can expand it. What have you done with your doubt? Have you allowed your doubt to cause you to sever ties with God? You're here right now so mad and so angry at God. And because you can't think of a good reason why he let whatever take place to you, you assume that there can't be one. So you distance yourselves from God's people and God's church broadly or a particular group of people or a particular church. And you assume that you move past it, but as soon as the mention or the memory of anybody that's a part of that group comes to mind, it causes you to be burning mad. Or has your doubt caused you to make assumptions that turn into conclusions? We've talked about this the past few weeks. Unanswered questions don't stay that way. They're wet cement. Unanswered questions harden and they firm into unfounded conclusions about God. Why God quickly turns into how could you, God? 
which is more of a statement and an indictment than it is a question. And I'm just here to tell you that the winds of doubt don't have to extinguish the flames of faith. There's a better way, y'all. If you have reasons to doubt God and you can remember to turn those reasons, those doubts into dialogue, you're on the pathway for a deep relationship with God. The past three weeks have been a case study of sorts in the book of Habakkuk. If you haven't been with us or you've forgotten week one, chapter one was this. Speak up. Turn your doubts with God into dialogue. If you doubt God at any point in time, write those things down. They make a great conversation starter. Speak up. Week two was uh, turn your worry into waiting. Listen up. That once we talk to God and express our doubts, then we have to take a step back and let him speak for himself because he does. And I think that if we can speak up, listen up then you and I can rise up. Maybe not completely out of our doubts, but out of the downcast soul that those doubts bring. So if you would turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3, and just a little bit of context, Habakkuk is a prophet that seems to have a problem with God. God tells him to say something to a group of folks, and Habakkuk, instead of speaking to the people like the rest of the prophets do, he calls God out on his apparent inconsistencies. He speaks up. He hears what God has to say. And the third chapter, do you know what it is? It's a song. It's a praise. He successfully moves From a problem with God to this praise of God. How many in here have had problems with God? How many in here would love for those problems to move to a praise? Right here, Habakkuk 3. Here's the very first point. If our problems with God are ever going to move to a praise of God, the very first thing that we have to do is this. You have to know your God. You have to know your God, verses 1 through 15. Verses 1 through 15 is really God's scouting report. For those of y'all that have played sports, when you were getting ready to come up against uh, somebody from a new team, what your coach would do or folks from the team, they would put together film, and you would sit down, and they'd have this film, and they would have a notebook that would tell you how this person acts. So when he's getting ready to drive left, if you're trying to guard him and he puts the ball in his left hand, know that he's not going to go to the basket, he's going to shoot. And the better that you studied the scouting report, the better you can guard your enemy, your opponent. The good news here is God is not our foe. He's somebody on our team. And for those of you that know folks on your team, there's a group of guys here that I play ball with two times a week and have for the past year, I've got a scouting report on all of them. So when they're on my team, I know how to navigate. What he's starting to do right here says, this is God's scouting report. Look here at verse verse, uh, 2, 3 verse 2, it says this, look, Lord, I've heard the report about you. God, I've heard the scouting report. Lord, I, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. 
Make it known in these years, in your wrath, remember mercy. What he's saying is, God, I've studied the scouting report, but it seems like you've been in retirement, and I need you to unretire. What I love about the rest of this text is it starts off, and verse 1 tells us that it's a prayer, but what you find is that he spends more time remembering what God has done than requesting for God to do anything else. So as he's praying, he starts off with this request, God, I need you to unretire, but the rest of this, just look, look through, look at all of the pronouns. Verses 3 through 7, his, his, his. This is what God's like, his, his, his. Verses 8 through 15, look. God, are you mad? Your wrath, your rage, you ride, you're victorious. You took, you split, your flying arrows, you march, you trample, you come, you crush, you pierce, you tread. He's remembering all of what God has done. He's reminding us that the Bible is a window, it's not a mirror. The Bible is not a mirror for you to hold up to yourself and just look at yourself. The Bible is a window meant for you to look at it and through it to see what God is like. And so as he's praying and turns this song, this is a song of God's scouting report. We can't go through each verse, but it's broken down like this. Verse 3 starts off and he's like, listen, y'all, I know it doesn't seem like it. But those people that know their God know that God is is close. Verse 3, God comes from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. What it does is it gives us a location on earth. So when he says that God's coming, what he's saying is it's not like he has to make the trip all the way from heaven. He's close. Have y'all come back from a flight and you told somebody the time that you had to be picked up? And they knew that you were going to land at 4 o'clock. And you stand outside at 4 o'clock and you're not there and you call them and you ask them where they are. And you can hear the TV in the background and they say, I'm on my way. (laughs) That's not what you want. What you want is to call somebody and not for them to just give you an on my way, but for them to say, I'm in the cell phone lot. I'm close. So as he talks about God, he gives this location that reminds us of the work that God did when he freed Israel from bondage so that it would jog their minds. God's close. Verse 5, look, plagues go before him. Pestilence follows in his footsteps. They're being reminded of a God that was close enough to save people from their physical bondage. Verse 6, he stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. There is nothing more stable or sturdy than a mountain. And he's saying this God is so powerful that when he's in the building, mountains are shook. This is the scouting report of the God that's on your side. But he doesn't just say that God's close. Do you know the rest of this prayer, what he brings out is, look, look, it's not just that God is close, but in times of trouble, I want you to know that this God is confrontational. Verse 8, 
Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? What's he saying there? Have you ever walked into somebody's house and you see a hole in the wall and it seems like they took out their wrath on that wall and what you say is, what did the wall do to you? What he's saying is, God, what did the Red Sea do to you? I heard about the way that you twisted the Red Sea, that you split it apart. Your anger was twisted over sea. What did the Red Sea do to you? God was saying, well, Pharaoh tried to use it to back my people into a corner and keep them enslaved, and I'm not having that. God is a confronter. Look here at verse 9. Look, you took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah. We don't fight with bows and arrows and swords. So if this was in our day, what Habakkuk would say is, Dad, God, God, you took your shirt off. You were ready to go. What he would say is, man, you took off your earrings. And you know what I'm saying? You took... You know, you put the Vaseline on your face so the fist would slide off. What he's saying, what he's saying is, listen, this God that he's been crying out to for help, he's saying, God, more than just changing things, I need hope. And more than just requesting, he's remembering and saying, this God, the God that we serve is close And the God that we serve is confrontational. Verse 11, look, sun and the moon stand still in their lofty residence. And the flash of your flying arrows and the brightness of your shining spirit. Where does that come from? The battle in Joshua. Where God didn't just set back clocks like you and I did. God God took the sun and the moon and he said, hold up, y'all. There's something that I'm trying to do to liberate my people and I need all of y'all to stand still. Verse 13, you come out, right, to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. What he's doing is he's recounting the faithfulness of God, remembering that what God does is he uses his power to save people. And the question is, can you do that? Can you, at the drop of a dime, do you know God and what he's done so well that whenever your back is up against the wall, whenever you start to doubt him, you can recall all these things to mind? Not just can you do that, do you? My wife hates it when we're in a conversation and she says any word or phrase that might be found somewhere in a 90s R&B song because she'll know regardless of how serious the conversation is, those words are wedged so deep into my soul that I'll stop and I'll just start to sing them. Are the words of God wedged so deep into your soul that whenever your back is up against the wall, 
And it's reminiscent of some other way that people were going to die and for it to be the end. You would say, ah, but that reminds me of the time that God. I I know that we couldn't get the lights on, but that reminds me of the time that God said, let there be light. I, I know it's infertility and I'm weighed down, but that reminds me of the time that God. We work a whole lot on our insight trying to figure out what God's trying to do when we should spend more time working on our hindsight, looking at what God has done. My, my mom did it every morning growing up, and we were notoriously late for everything. And we could not leave my house without reading, praying, and singing to God. And you say, where did that come from? And I'm reminded of my mom's story, who had five miscarriages before she had five children. And that's the only way that you get through something like that. It's no coincidence that the people that know their God can stand unshaken in times of doubt. It's no coincidence that the people that often stand unshaken in times of doubt are the people that know their God. So here's the main point. Here's what comes out of this text. Listen. Because God can't change, his past acts of faithfulness is really a future promise. Because God can't change what we've seen him do in the past in terms of saving his people It's actually a future, it's what he'll do, because he can't change. Or put like this, if you know your God, then you know you're good, because you know you're good. That's confusing to some of y'all, because you don't know how to use your and your. Um, (laughs) I'll explain it as we go on, but you're with... An apostrophe is a contraction. If you know your God, the God that you have, then you are your, then you're good because you know, right, not you are your, what you have, you really know what's good. If you know your God, then you know you're good because you know you're good. Point one is know your God. Here's the next point. Uh, Know your good. Know your good. Uh, Like I said, this is a song. So what takes place is for people that know their God, verses 1 through 15, is the scouting report. Verse 16 to 18 is going to be his worship, right? And we use that word all of the time. Here's my definition of worship, the best definition that I can think of, and that's this. Worship is this. It is you coming to the realization that the state of your soul doesn't have to match your surroundings. Worship is this. It is the realization that the state of your soul doesn't have to match your surroundings. Um, Fashion changes. In the 90s and 2000s as I grew up, uh, it was cool to be like really, like really, really matchy-matchy, right? So... Your undershirt would match 
the logo, right? The polo would match your shoes and all that. Like, you would have to, like, match. And people that mismatched were looked at as peculiar and strange because it all had to match. But now we live in a day and an age where it's cool to, to be, like, mismatched, right? I'm a product of the 90s, so I, yeah, I still can't, right? My shoes are black and white because my shirt is black and white, right? But I think this, though. Listen, being mismatched is actually the best picture of faith, true faith and trust at work. Worship is this, the realization, the state of your soul doesn't have to match your surroundings. Look here at verse 16. I heard and I trembled with it. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. What's he saying? Do you remember in the first chapter he's crying out to God because there's injustice in his land. And he says, God, what will you do about this? And God says, before things get better, they're actually going to get much worse. I'm going to use a wicked nation to come and judge you all. And God's saying, that's firm and that's fixed. So this is a guy on the cusp of losing everything. Look at the end of verse 16. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress. I'm not going to be in an uproar. I I trust you, God. I'm going to quietly wait for the stress to come against the people invading us. Look, Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, what he's saying is that everything, From the optional to the essential. I'm going to lose it all. Right? He talks about the fig tree, you know, the fruit, the the vine. Like, yeah, there's going to be no fruit. There's going to be no wine, no olives for oil. All the luxuries that I'm used to, I'm not going to have that. But then he even goes and says, even the most basic things, I'm going to be deprived of those. No crops from the field. That's fine. I can do without carrots. But no flocks, no meat, no wool, no bread, no milk. I would say, can you imagine? But some of y'all don't have to. There's some of you here in this room that as you read that right now, you say, this describes my life. No job. No marriage. No justice for family and friends. No hope for a better life. No food on the table. No courage to even move past that shame and ask somebody for help. No dignity. My surround, there's nothing. But look at what he says. Though I don't have anything, though my surroundings say that my soul should be low, verse 18, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God 
of my salvation. He says, though I don't have anything, I'm not going to resent. My soul won't be low, but I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to praise God. Things are mismatched. The state of my soul doesn't match my surroundings. But it's because they don't have to, because I have God. And what he knows is this, and I want you all to grasp this. Your circumstances are not elevator buttons. You know, you get on an elevator and they say, what floor are you going to go to? We tend to treat our bad circumstances like buttons. What floor are you going to go to? Singleness. Joblessness. Homelessness. Childlessness. Infertility. No money. Shame. Molested. Abused. We doubt the goodness of God. And that doubt turns to distance. Because we think of our circumstances as elevator buttons. And so we think the only thing that's going to fix the lowness that we feel from being childless is children. We think the only low that's going to fix us from experiencing the low that comes from joblessness is a good job and more money. We think the only thing that's going to fix us from the shame and the brokenness and hurt that we feel from being molested or abused is rewriting history. And we know that that button is out of reach. So we live lives frustrated, mad, angry, and hopeless, and we doubt the goodness of God. But in this case study, what he's saying is that, no, listen. The state of your soul doesn't have to match your surroundings. If you know your God, then you can know that you're good. Because God can't change. And your circumstances, however good or bad they are, can't remain the same. They can't help but to change. God is steady and constant. God won't change. Your circumstances are the weather. It's raining right now. It is foolish for you to go home and to sell all of your some um, 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 clothes and shoes and buy only rain boots as if just because it rains right now, it will only rain. That's not the truth. Your circumstances, they change. So put your hope in, in more kids, in a better job. In anything else. And what you'll find is those kids. Right, you start to be like kids, right? That job. Job. But what he's saying is God doesn't change. God's greatest hits aren't memories. They're promises because he doesn't change. So worship becomes this, hear me, a response 
to revelation, not observation. We tend to treat worship as a response to observation. It's hard for me to worship. There's things in my life just are going real bad. I don't feel like anything is changing right now or like it will change. And all these things that I hope God will change won't change. And that may be true, but that has absolutely nothing to do with your joy. That has absolutely nothing to do with worship. Worship is a response to to who God says that he is. And if he doesn't change, then we always have a reason to worship because we are worshiping him and not just what he said that he would, or not just what he is presently doing. Because what he's presently doing is a work in progress. It's not done yet. I know you may be in here and you may feel like, but John, you don't get it. Things for me are really dark right now. They are really, really dark. Darker than I ever thought that they would be. And I would say, I don't know why God chose to put that particular darkness into your life. But I do know God allows darkness to come in. In the same way that when you're sitting in a theater, before the show goes up, the lights go off. And you know, right, you're very mad when the movie starts and the lights are still on. Because what you're saying is, yo, I can't see it all that well. You want those lights to go off, not so you can focus on the darkness, but so that the picture pops off of the screen and you can enjoy what takes place is that darkness comes in. What he's saying is, God, things are really dark, darker than I've ever thought that they would be. And what he's saying, God's saying, I'm using this so that the picture would pop. Listen, your people in the deepest darkness are often the ones that are most well-equipped to have the deepest joy because they're not blinded by shallow substitutes. Listen to Jupiter Hammond, free black man, 1787, talking to a group of African-Americans, some slaves, some free, in America, a country that was founded for religious freedom. This is 40 years after the Great Awakening, what most folks talk about as one of the greatest revivals to sweep across our nation. And 40 years later, he's sitting in a group of folks who this religion and revival did almost nothing to free them out of their present bondage. You can imagine if there's an attack on being minority and Christian right now, imagine back then. He's sitting with these ro- in, in this room of folks and listen to what he says. Listen to how he describes their darkness. He says this, Now, my brethren, it seems to me that there are no people that ought to attend to the hope of happiness in another world so much as we do. Most of us are cut off from comfort and happiness here in this world and can expect nothing from it. Now, seeing this is the case, why should we not take care to be happy Now, see in this case, why should we not take care to be happy 
after death. Why should we spend our whole lives in sinning against God and be miserable in this world and in the world to come? If we do this, we shall certainly be the greatest of fools. We shall be slaves here and slaves forever. We cannot plead so great temptations to neglect religion as others. Riches and honors, all the good things in life, which drown the greater part of mankind, who have the gospel in perdition, or people who have the gospel in their heads, but are in hell, can be little or no temptation to us. What he tells this group is that your darkness has actually showed you the shallowness of the things that people put their hope in. I can't explain the darkness. I do not have special insight into the particular ways that God wants to use it in your life. I don't know and I can't claim to speak on behalf of him for what he's specifically trying to do there. All I know is his track record. That the people of God have always been in trouble. They've always been in dark. They've always had their back against the, the wall. And God has always delivered them every single time. So it helps us see both sin and faith in a new light. The Apostle Paul is going to talk about sin as this lack of faith. It's going to help us see faith is more than just saying, I believe, but it's saying, I believe it so much that it causes me to worship. Here's what lack of faith says. It looks at our surroundings and it says, God did this. All right, I'm going to take my life back into my own hands and I'm going to do what I think is best. Faith says this. God did this. God allowed it. This is absolutely horrendous. And I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, but God allowed it to happen. And what faith says is, okay, I'm going to let him finish. I'm not 100% sure of why, but I'm going to let him finish, and I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. For me to take matters into my own hands would be spiritual suicide. This past week, um, as you all know, we moved into a new spot. This is week two here, right? So week one went great. We're all on this high. Friday comes, and the power gets shut off in this building. You bring a guy out. He says it's a problem with the meter. Um, So we're like, all right, can we get this squared away? Yeah. Saturday comes, and what they say is, um, actually, it's not a problem with the meter. Um, This building, the meter, is on an address on Hopkins. That address was not on any of your documentation. Sorry, but the business people are home for the weekend. And um, see you Monday. So we're calling in. We're we're back and forth. All right, we got a bunch of people that are going to be here in this church building. What can you do? And everybody that we talk to says that there's nothing that we can do. So me, Richard, and Mo, and Reggie, and, you know, I talk with Sean, I talk with 
Jasmine, we start to strategize about what we're going to do, right? And so we say, all right, maybe we can get a generator, but it's supposed to rain outside. Uh, There's no lights in the bathrooms. I know it'll be weird. Maybe we can have folks hold their cell phone lights as they go to the bathroom. It's it's dark in here. That's strange. Uh, Let's just tell everybody to hold their camera phone lights. And, And we're strategizing and strategizing, and nothing takes place. And me and Richard and Mo, we get on the phone and we say, hey, yo, I know things seem bad. But let's pray, right? That if, if what God has done in the past, he can take care of in the future, let's pray, let's pray, let's pray. And so we prayed and we say, God, if you can say, let there be light and bring light out of nothing, you can give Debbie at Georgia Power some compassion and just ask her to turn... <laughs> Turn our lights back on, please, Lord. So the very next phone call, right, and I, I promise I'm, I'm trying to go somewhere. The very next phone call, we get in touch with somebody, and what they tell us is, um, hey, you're in luck. I can send a dispatch out to turn it on. It'll be over quick. Yeah, listen, she's like, the problem is at the transformer, so we'll send them out. Me and Chandra drove by here at 7.30 last night, and the power was not on. There's two things that I could do. I could say, Debbie, I'm, I'm going to take you at your word, and I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to prepare, and I'm going to go to sleep, and I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to hope that it's on. Or what I could say is, the problems at the transformer, I know what a transformer looks like. Let me get my ladder and go up and try to do it (laughs) myself. I'm still living and breathing, so you know that I chose the former. (laughs) But this is what sin does. It looks at our surroundings. It doubts that God can do the impossible. And as soon as it pinpoints what we perceive to be the problem, it goes and tries to take matters into its own hand, doing something that, that you don't have the knowledge to do. Or what you could say is, man, things look bad. I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to go to bed and sleep. And I'm going to wake up and drive by at 5 a.m. just to make sure that it really is on. But y'all get the point that I make. That's a great story. But what is it that keeps you and I from this? And I think what keeps us from this is that you and I are afraid of the dark. We can be inspired by a story like that. But when we go back and we have to face the infertility and the miscarriages. We have to face maybe the consequences that come from our bad choices and we doubt that God can actually give us mercy within that wrath. What do we do? Where do we get the strength and the courage from? And here's why I said this. Listen, if you know your God, if you know his track record, then you can know your good. You are good because you know your good. Look at verse 18b, where he locates his goodness. 18, yet I will celebrate in the Lord, and he doesn't say because I'm confident that he'll fix exactly what I hoped that he would fix. He said, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. My good does not come in a circumstance. My ultimate good comes in a person. 
Psalm 16, 1 through 2 says this, Protect me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. My good is a protecting God who protects those that are his. What Jesus does is that he takes this text and he takes it a step further than Habakkuk. What Jesus does is he embodies this text. And he says there are people that have gone into darkness and have trusted God, but the darkness that they've gone into, there's still been a light at the end of the tunnel. Or they've gone into the complete darkness of death and seen that they could trust God, but they haven't been able to come back and tell everybody that it's okay. So what Jesus says is I'm going to be the first one to go into this darkness and I'm going to go further than anyone else has ever gone. So Jesus comes in, look, he experiences the darkness that comes in this life, not like you and I do. There's some darkness we experience just because it's a broken world. There's some darkness we experience because of our own disobedience. Jesus experienced utter darkness, not because of his disobedience, but as a demonstration of God's justice, God's love, and God's power. God's justice. God is so just that even if sin and this faithlessness is located on the back of his beloved son that he loves more than anything, God will not withhold his justice from him. Jesus on the cross was a demonstration that we serve a confrontational God when it comes to injustice. Jesus' death on the cross shows God's love. And that God himself would rather come in the flesh and take the fullness of his own wrath so that the people that he loves wouldn't have to. Jesus' death on the cross is a demonstration of God's power. That he goes into the deepest darkness, which is death. The tomb is closed. And he pops back up saying, the other side is okay, y'all, the water's fine. So that you and I would know that even if we face the deepest, darkest darkness imaginable in this life, even if the tomb or the casket is closed. It's not the end of the story because we serve a God that raises the dead. Habakkuk 3.14, look. You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You pierce his head with his own spears. That was fulfilled in the Lord Jesus who defeated death by dying. So that you and I wouldn't have to fear what is the deepest darkness imaginable. And if he's done it in the past and doesn't change, we can count it as a future promise. If you know your God, then you know that you're good. Because you know your good is not in a circumstance, but in a person. And if that's what we embrace, hear this. The outcome is transformational. 
the outcome is worship. Not just faith, not just, well, not just faith is seen in trying to check off these rule boxes, but faith is seen in this deep and abiding worship and commitment to God. It's this victory cry that we have every week, week in and week out, that as we sing these songs, as we hear God's word, we're reminded of the good things that he's done. That we go into the weeks not feeling like our backs are against the wall and things are over for us because they're not. And what the outcome is, is that we find ourselves, you will immerse yourself in God's word because you want to be able to recount what he does at the drop of a dime. That's why starting in the month of April here as a church, from 9.15 to 10.15, amongst other classes that we're going to do, one thing that we're going to do year-round is a 52-week survey of the entire Bible. So what that means, April 7th, starting over there in that room, Genesis. And we're just going to do our best to try to move in order so that you can learn that and so that if God's past faithfulness is really a future promise, then in the good times, you and I need to be loaded up on those things so that we can constantly, week after week, say, things look bad, but it worked out. Things look bad, but it worked out. Things look bad, but it worked out. So when you get to your job on Monday, things look bad, but if God doesn't change, we're good. Two, we immerse ourselves in his word because that's how we listen. We immerse ourselves in prayer because he listens. He really got up from the grave. We can turn our doubts into dialogue. And then we immerse ourselves in community with two types of people. People that are currently his because we're a room of folks. There you go. And I heard a guy say it. Christians are like the cartoon characters that get like shot and they have all the holes through them and then they drink milk and all the milk comes out, what he was saying is like, Christians leak. We forget. So we surround ourselves with people that can jog our memories. But we also surround ourselves, not just with folks that are gods now, but people that are not yet his. And what I mean by not yet is I use that semantically, right? Not yet provides a sense of honesty but hope. So when people ask me if I can swim, I say, I'm not yet a swimmer, right? I can't, but there's a possibility that one day I may be. When we find people that don't know him, those are people that may not know him yet. Honest about where they are, but hopeful. Hopeful that if they won't immerse themselves in God's word, and they won't immerse themselves in prayer, at least they'll immerse themselves in us. And I've known a bunch of people that have been motivated to read the book once they've seen the movie. If God has graced you with influence in somebody else's life, don't take it lightly. Speak honestly. Folks may say, I'm not a Christian because I just doubt God too much. To which we can say, I think you've made a wrong connection in between doubt and relationship with God. 
the winds of doubt don't have to blow out the flames of faith. And what we can say is, I'm a Christian, and I have a deep relationship with God because I doubt him all the time. But I take all those doubts to him. And as I speak up and listen up, he reminds me of his goodness. And it enables me to rise up. Maybe not above all of my doubts, but I rise up over the downcast soul that I thought had to be the case because my surroundings were low. But now I found that even if everything is lost, even if I'm in the deepest darkness, it's only because God has momentarily turned out the lights to put a big picture on the screen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for what you help us to do with our doubts. You remind us that they don't keep us from relationship with you, but they deepen our relationship with you. Help us to be honest and hopeful with all of them. Help us to look backwards at your faithfulness throughout all time, but particularly in the Lord Jesus as your faithfulness just hones in and is displayed fully and completely in the life of one man. you remind us that we don't have to be a product of our circumstances. We can worship you because you stay the same. I pray that because you stay the same, our worship would be consistent, full, vibrant. It's in Jesus' name we pray.